Welcome to Planet Local Voices, a new series from the Local Futures podcast. In this series, you will hear from a wide array of voices who all came together in 2023 to build a global movement for local economies worldwide. This, our inaugural week's episode, features John Perkins. John spent many years working to advance the interests of American corporations in global South countries at a time when neoliberal policies were being rolled out. But upon realizing the destructive ramifications of the work he was doing, he became an important whistleblower. His best-known book is Confessions of an Economic Hitman, 2004 which describes his role in a clandestine process of economic colonization at the behest of corporations, banks, and the United States government. The book spent more than 70 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. From Planet Local Voices, here's John Perkins. We're at a remarkable time in history right now. There's no question about it. We're, we're, we're standing on the precipice. And the precipice is one that's caused by people like me when I was an economist. I was chief economist, but really as an economic hitman. And my job was to uh, convince countries with resources, our, our corporations coveted, uh, to basically turn those resources over to us. And we did this through debt, we did this through loans, we did this through building infrastructure, we did, we did all kinds of mechanisms. But the result is what we call a death economy an economic system that's consuming and polluting itself into extinction. And it's built on, on the single goal of maximizing short-term profits for corporations and uh, short-term maximization of, of consumption uh, for the rest of us. What, how will we see consumption? You know, some of us consume less, but we, we, we got a right. You know? we, we got a right to do whatever we want. Human supremacy. You know, we're supreme over the planet. Well, we can get what we want. And that's led to this horrible situation, which is devastating life on this earth as we know it. But we're, we're waking up to that fact. I travel all over the world. Uh, I'm, I'm privileged to have the opportunity to speak in venues in Asia, and Africa, uh, Latin America, Europe, uh, Middle East, <laughs> the Americas. Uh, and everywhere I go, I find that people are waking up to the fact that we've got to change, we've got to create a life economy, an economic system that pays people uh, to clean up pollution, pays people to regenerate destroyed environments, plant trees where trees have been cut, you know, re regenerate the rainforests. A life economy, this is not about people going back to live in caves, this is about creating a whole new system. It's not about stopping growth, it's about stopping growth as we know it but we've got to increase growth in areas that help people feed themselves. And this gets us to the local aspect, that the more local we can be in terms of growing our own food and producing our own clothes and, and so on and so forth, the better off we are. And, and it's this return to this idea that local is good, that small is beautiful. <laughs> At the same time, I think it's very important for us to recognize that we are a global community. You know, we, we look at this planet, the, the astronauts went out and they looked back and they saw this planet and the, 
it just opened them up. I, Edgar Mitchell, one of the guys who walked on the moon, was a friend of mine, and he just had this amazing experience, you know? As, he was a fighter pilot, he was the right stuff, and, but he got up there and he's crying as he looks back at the planet and sees, you know, it's one planet. We are a, a global community. So it's very important that we stay connected on a certain level, but it's also extremely important that as much as possible we're localized. And that's more possible in certain areas than others. I come from nor northern New England, New Hampshire, where it's, it's, it's hard to grow food in the winter when the ground's covered with three feet of snow. But there's ways of storing many of the products, you know, and that are age old and so forth. So there's still that, that ability. Um, so this whole business of bringing us to a life economy is about encouraging local as much as possible and at the same time recognizing that we are all part of a species that is global and is communicating on a global level. There's a widespread idea that the globalization of the economy is somehow synonymous with international cooperation. But John's experience of working as an economic hitman shows that globalization is about asserting economic power and has therefore been a source of antagonism between countries. A prime example is, is the antagonism that's going on between China and the United States today. And here you've got uh, the world's biggest economy, the United States, uh, which has been an imperial power now for some time. Uh, and it's in decline as an imperial power. Uh, and always when there's an imperial power in decline and there's another one rising, history tells us they're going to clash which we're seeing, the, second, the world's second largest economy, China, which is rapidly overtaking us and is making tremendous headway in places like Africa and Latin America. Uh, many more countries now are, are, uh, are taking Chinese investments over U.S. investments and their main trading partners with China now instead of the United States, something like 100 and, almost 130 versus the U.S.'s 50 or so, where, where those countries are prime. But the point is that these two countries combined produced about 45% of the world's economy and the world's pollution. And if we don't come together to recognize that we've got to move from a death economy to a life economy, mm. we're in deep trouble because these two countries both have got to take leadership roles. We've all got to participate. Every country's got to participate. But these two countries have so contributed so much to the global economy and pollution that, you know, if they don't come together to recognize the importance of ending this situation, we're in deep, deep, deep trouble. And I think it's fair to say that China and the United States can disagree on just about everything else. We can fault them for their policies in, in Taiwan and uh, in Hong Kong about their, about their attitude toward Muslim people in many parts of their country. They can fault us about our invasion of Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. And by us, I mean the United States. I'm American and our immigration policies, they can look at all those things. So we can, we can continue to disagree. But let's agree on this one thing. We can't continue to, to have this death economy, which is a situation where the United States is importing as much meat, as, uh, beef, as it's exporting. I mean, how absurd is that? And China does the same thing. And we send, we send wood from the state I live in in the United States, Washington state. We send trees over to China where they're processed and then sent back to the United States and made into products that are then sold in China. 
I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> All the fossil fuels involved are ridiculous. A major driver in this, in this absurd escalation of trade is, it has been free trade agreements. So in the United States now, there's this big controversy over immigration from Latin America. Why are people coming from Central America? Because of CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, and NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which governs Mexico. So it's just a simple example. Uh, and, and I'm just going to use some numbers that aren't necessarily the accurate numbers, but let's say it costs $10 to produce a bushel of corn in the United States. And, and the small farmer in Guatemala can do it for $5. But so the small farmer has to sell it for $6 to make any profit. And the American corporation is making it for $10, but getting a subsidy of $6. So they can sell it for $5 and still make a dollar profit in Guatemala. And so the Guatemalan farmer can't compete, even though he's producing it much cheaper, because the United States has subsidies, which are allowed under these free trade agreements. Tariffs are not allowed. So Guatemala can't impose tariffs and they and then are a wealthy enough country to subsidize their farmers. So the poor farmer, the, 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 you know, the campesino, the small farmer, goes out of business. And what does he do? He has a couple of choices. He can go to work for a big American uh, sweatshop you know, and make next to nothing and, and be totally vulnerable to, to these terrible working conditions or migrate to the United States. And it's not just the small farmer. If the small farmer goes out of business, the local, the local markets go out of business, uh, the, 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 the local shops go out of business, everything that supports the, the farmer and everything that he sells to, it, it, it's, it's a spiraling thing. So if we want to end the immigration problem in the United States, uh, what we need to do is support the economies of the countries that we've, we've ruined by our policies, these trade policies. And there's and this similar conditions that uh, impact our relationship with China and with the Middle East, with the oil. I mean, you can go on and on and on. That's just one, uh, one example, which yeah. is a pretty simple one, an easy one to understand, and, and very true. It's, yeah. it's exactly how it works. And my numbers might be a little off, but, yeah. but, that's, that, but the, uh, yeah. the situation is that. And on top of that, of course, the big agribusinesses are, are using tremendous amounts of insecticides and, fertile, you know, and, and, and chemical fertilizers. Yeah, it's it, it destroying the earth. They're destroying the earth. The small farmer in, in Mexico or Guatemala typically takes good care of the earth, although that's changing too because the, the Monsantos and the others are coming in with these miracle crops. So, uh, but, but, so the answer here is local, local, local. Let the farmer in the United States produce the, the, you know, produce the corn that we're going to eat here in the United States. Let the farmer in, in Guatemala and Central America and, and Mexico produce the corn that they, that they want there. And maybe a little bit of it gets exported across borders and so forth, but primarily it's all done for, for local consumption. Uh, that's just so important for us to understand. But it's the laws, it's the rules that we've implemented, it's the policies that are driven by the power of the imperialistic countries. And history shows this over and over. You know, the Spanish did it during the Spanish colonial period. The British did it during their, their, their period. The United States is not a democracy. We are an empire. We asked John about why he, unlike his colleagues, was eventually able to see through the ideological blinkers of neoliberal economics. He told a story about his experiences learning from an indigenous culture in the Ecuadorian Amazon when he was a young man. So when I was right out of business school, 
I was determined not to go to Vietnam, the war. This was the, the late 60s. And uh, I didn't see any reason why I should be killing people that had done me no harm or why they should kill me. <laughs> so I wasn't going to go. So I joined the Peace Corps. And they sent me deep into the Amazon rainforest um, to work with the Schwa people. And if you've ever seen a shrunken head or a picture of one, the Schwa did it. Uh, they're, they're warriors. I was told that these people are vicious and, and they're, they're totally impoverished. They're some of the poorest people on, on the planet. You know, if you look it up in the encyclopedia or the World Bank reports, they're, they're, they're totally impoverished. You know, I get there and I found a, a peace-loving people who sometimes went to war with them, and I'll get into that in a minute. But they also were anything but impoverished. They had really good food, really good water. They had really good lives. They worked on average for two hours a day. The men went hunting for a couple hours early in the morning before it got too hot while the animals, you know, were sort of semi-dark. At the same time, the women were working in the gardens. And then, then they'd stop and they'd spend the rest of the day playing in the rivers uh, with their children, uh, maybe you know, make some, some small easy work like, like uh, making baskets or uh, sharpening the, the points on their, on, their, on their blowgun darts and you know, hanging out and telling stories, making love. They were, very, they, were very, they were very into close personal relationships, developing those. These were not poor people, but they didn't have a currency, so they were listed as poor. Uh, they didn't have our kind of lifestyle. Many people now recognize the value of learning from indigenous cultures, but finding ways to actually implement those lessons in the modern urbanized world requires some radical thinking. This is where an understanding of economic localization comes in. I often get asked questions like, well, how can New York City become localized? You know, what, what's the process there? And there's a model that I've seen whereby, you know, cars are, are forbidden to enter New York City and all the streets become parks or gardens. And the parking garages, apparently, you know, you can grow food very efficiently in a big parking garage if you have mirrors that aim the sun's light into the parking garages and then you have hydroponic. So all the parking garages become gardens and rooftops have solar panels and so on and so forth. So, you know, there, there are ways that we can cope with this. It, it's challenging. It's, it's something we haven't ever done. And this is a time, we are at a time where we're discovering that the world is, is round. <laughs> it's not flat. You know, we're at one of those times in history, there have been a few times in history where radical changes have had to happen because we've discovered something about ourselves that we didn't know before. And now we're discovering this about ourselves, that we have created a system that's killing us, that's going to kill our children and grandchildren. And it's, it's, a, it's a time for radicalization, it's a, and, a, and it's a time for a new consciousness. And I do believe that people around the world are waking up. There's a consciousness revolution. Wherever I travel and speak in various countries, I, 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 there's a rising up, there's a welling of people that understand. But Always when there's a revolution, when agents of change come along, the status quo tries to push them back. The status quo thinks that they've got it made, and so they try to stop it. And we're seeing that today, that the, all these attempts to stop this, you know, oh no, there's really no problem, there's no climate change, you know, we, we can keep doing fossil fuels or whatever. Uh, but historically speaking, the agents of change take power from the pushback. 
I've been a martial artist all my life, and I know that if there's a guy a lot bigger and stronger than me, I don't want to try to overpower him. I got to use his energy against him. And that's what, what true agents have changed to when, when the status quo pushes, pushes them, tries to stop them, you use their energy against them. And I think we're getting into that process now because at the, in the final analysis, we have to convince the people at the top of the food chain. Um, and that's at the top of politics, at the top of corporations. They have to convince them that it's to their interest to turn things around. And that's what we're in the process of doing, of redefining what it means to be successful. A tremendous number of people that, that have these jobs that are doing bad things to the planet believe they're doing good things. And I'm, I was an example. So in business school and later by the World Bank and, and, and other the United Nations, I, the International Monetary Fund, what we were taught was if, if uh, a country's poor, lower income country in Africa, Latin America, wherever, the way to bring them out of poverty is to invest lots of money in hiring our companies to build big infrastructure projects like electric power systems, highways, ports, airports, industrial parts, parks. That was the way to bring them out of poverty. And we could prove it with economic models. We'd show that when you do this, the, the gross domestic product increases, and it does. And so my training was, that's what we want to do. We want to increase, increase GDP. And the way to do it is invest huge amounts of money in infrastructure, which gives our companies tremendous profits when they build it, but it also makes the economy of Ecuador, Peru, or Nigeria increase. But as I get into this, and I began to look over time at what GDP means, I discovered that GDP is a measure of how well the wealthy are doing. It doesn't measure prosperity in a country. It measures how well the corporations and a few wealthy families are doing. So if we invested a lot of money into electric power systems, the people that use most of the power that own the factories were the wealthy families or the foreign corporations in that country that needed electricity. Same with transportation systems. <laughs> and they would prosper and therefore GDP would go up. But the majority of the people would suffer because money was diverted from health care, education and other social services to pay the interest on the debt. So we'd give the countries all this debt and they would hire our companies to make big profits to build these systems that would benefit their rich and the, and the rest of the people were left holding the bag. And then in the long run, the, company, the country couldn't repay its principal. And so the IMF, we'd go back as, usually as representative of the IMF at this point <clears throat> and say, listen, since you can't pay your debt, sell your collateral, oil, or whatever resource was used as a collateral, real cheap to our corporations without environmental and social regulations. I also would say, you know, privatize your public sector businesses and sell them to our investors cheap and uh, let us build a military base on your soil. Ah, and let us, oh yes, and so uh, vote with us on the next vote against Cuba at the United Nations. So these neoliberal stipulations, conditionalities, we call them, that you, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll restructure your loan. We'll yeah. make life a little easier for you, but but <laughs> you've got to buy into what we want you to do. It's a huge ideological leap to go from that neoliberal outlook to the worldview and economic vision that John champions now. 
We asked if he could explain more about what happened for him during that transformative time of his life. But I saw the light that, that what I was doing was wrong uh, because I was, I, I, I fell in love with a Colombian woman who understood this and, and, and I, was, I, was, I was exploiting Colombia, I had an office in Colombia and also uh, I, one of my clients was Omar Torrijos, the head of state of Panama, and he, you know, he pointed this out to me. He understood the system totally. He was the guy that renegotiated the Canal Treaty with Jimmy Carter and was eventually probably assassinated uh, you know, in a private plane crash. There's never a smoking gun produced, but uh, the best way to assassinate someone in an airplane is, is, is an airplane because there is no smoking gun at the end. It goes up with the plane. But anyway, that's another story that I write about. But he, he would tell me, John, don't you understand how you've been hoodwinked? And you're hoodwinking everybody else. And I have to say that once I understood what I, that what I was doing was wrong, I didn't want to understand it. I didn't want to believe it. I was making a lot of money. I grew up the son of a teacher in rural New Hampshire, never had a lot of money, and never got to travel anywhere. And my dad taught at a boys' boarding school, and these kids came from Paris and London <laughs> and <laughs> Buenos Aires from all over. And I, I, you know, just the stories they told blew my mind, and I had always wanted to travel. And now I'm traveling first class. I'm, I'm meeting with presidents of countries. I'm making good money. I'm eating in the fanciest restaurants all over the world. I don't want to admit that what I'm doing is wrong. And I think that's another side of this, is that it becomes so seemingly attractive. But then at one point, and the, the, Paola, this, this Colombian woman pointing out to me, she said, yeah, you know, it seems like you're living a, the, the, the American dream. But she said, I happen to know that as you travel, most nights you put yourself to sleep with a lot of alcohol and Valium. And then in the morning you have to wake up with lots of coffee. Uh, you're not happy. This isn't making you happy. I thought, well, that's true. I'm miserable. I hate myself. But it took a, a lot to get there. And, and yet, I think what my story tells is that Changed, changing yourself and changing the, the world too is entirely possible. We can do this. We just have to open our minds more. And there's so many forces trying to get us not to open our minds. You know, pay, pay people good salaries, make life seem really good. Talk, talk about what the, what's the American dream? The American dream is a lie. You know, it's like, you know, who needs big yachts and, and huge houses? It, they're just, they're terribly worrisome. <laughs> who wants those problems, you know? I've I got to say, I've known quite a few very, very wealthy people, and I've never known any that were, that seemed really happy and, and at peace with themselves. We should all feel blessed. We should feel so blessed to be alive at this time because we have a tremendous opportunity to really change things, to do something that's never been done in history. There's been a lot of empires that have collapsed. All of them have collapsed. And this one's collapsing, but we have an opportunity to turn, not this empire, but to turn our vision of the world that's created, that creates empires of all into a very different vision about being local and at the same time understand that we're part of a global community.
That interview was recorded in September 2023 at the Planet Local Summit in Bristol, UK. To get notified about new episodes from this series, subscribe to our channel or sign up to our mailing list via localfutures.org. Also find on our website a vast collection of resources for education and big picture activism to shift the economy from global to local. And of course, we hope you'll tune in to the other inspiring thinkers and movement leaders featured in the Planet Local Voices series. Until next time, thanks for listening to Planet Local Voices from the Local Futures podcast.